This is Mia Warren, Editor-in-Chief of Prompt, a literary magazine and community for writers at Northwestern University. This is our second podcast, and today we'll be listening to a few readings from our past contributors. First, we'll hear from Bryce O'Tierney, whose poem Between the Rings won in the poetry category for our fall quarter contest, Theme of Intimate Spaces. Prompt has also published two other poems by Bryce, Inception to a Fox and Undertow. You can check out Bryce's poems and other student works at www.promptmagazine.com. Bryce, welcome to the Prompt Podcast. Thanks, Mia. I'd like to begin with a poem called Between the Rings. Unlike the raccoon, we cannot date ourselves back by our tails, ringed in quiet smoke like the spiraling heart of the bristlecone pine. Yet, the conifer murmur rushes in our ears, rain fall, hums on our lips, sun rise, at the quickening pulse of that blinding question, are we not but brief flickerings of life? Incident rays skipped across climactic cycles. It strikes you. The raccoon emerged not to drink up, but to reflect back the light raining from your eyes. There is no need to search the breath caught in your throat for your place in history. Before there were words, there were trees. Next, I would like to read a poem called Undertow. Do you ever wonder about the ancient dance in your hip bones? Some wave that sculpted across you the song of the whale, jaw riveted at your sides, hip bone glides to inward slope of baleen stomach, with soft shadow hair across the smooth edging into tidal step forward. The whale road, memory rushes back into me, breathing outward, gazing up at that dark arctic artifact in the rafters. Inward, thoughtful feet pressing upward into the top bunk, recognizing my tilted core, the shape, dream falling into the thought. We must be fish out of water, dancers. That was a reading by Bryce O'Tierney, a sophomore dual degree student in violin performance and anthropology who hails from Anchorage, Alaska. You can check out her poetry at www.promptmagazine.com. Next, we'll hear from Taylor Barrett, whose essay, Room, won in the nonfiction category for our fall quarter contest. Taylor, welcome to the Prompt Podcast. Thanks, Mia. I'm really excited to be on the show. This is Room. After dating my girlfriend for around four and a half months, I asked if I could rearrange her bedroom. I think the layout and design of a space matters for emotional well-being, and the arrangement of this particular room lacked any type of grace. The layout was strictly functional. Bed against corner, wooden table stacked with clothing on opposite wall, no curtains on the window, just plastic blinds to block offensive early morning light. The bed itself sported brown-gray sheets that could not have been above 160 thread count. In spite of all of these visual and tactile insults, I refrained from saying anything. I was just getting to know this woman, who was seemingly content with the arrangement. Who was I to tell her it all looked gross? As time passed and I began waking up again and again jammed against the wall, I grew increasingly frustrated with the layout. One day, feeling somewhat confident in our mutual sense of trust and the longevity of our relationship, I spoke up. And being the open individual she is, she readily accepted my offer to rearrange. 
while she ran out to get us coffee and croissants from the nearby cafe. Her tabby cat, Russ, looked bewildered as I, still clad in my PJs, manipulated large pieces of furniture as if they were giant chess pieces. I wrenched her queen bed from its sad position in the corner and situated it against the east wall where two end tables could graciously flank it. Later I decided that she needed a large piece of art above her bed, so I got a three-by-five-foot canvas from a yard sale and painted a portrait of an owl nested among branches. I've yet to find a frame, but I'm still looking. At my urging, she has since purchased matching lamps for the newly acquired side tables. I used to hate when my mom did this kind of thing. Enter a room and automatically change it. She rarely curbs her impulse to enhance a space. There isn't a room I don't love. I don't re leave a room until I love it, and that's the truth. And actually, that is one of my design imperatives, and that is, what's bothering me? What's bothering me? And I just work a room until nothing bothers me. Everything feels perfect. Everything feels good. My childhood home exemplified this credo. The Rossmore Avenue house was a museum of sorts, of my mom's design exploits from the last 25 years. Like a fine piece of literature in which every word has a deliberate purpose, every piece of furniture in the 1921 house, every miniature bronze, every arrangement of metal flowers, was selected by my mom for its inherent beauty. She even altered the shell of the Howard Hughes-built home to suit her aesthetic needs. She designed the eight-foot wall surrounding the property. She ripped out the former maid's room and incorporated an outdoor walkway, creating a spacious family room. She designed and erected the crying garden, where one could go to cry while reading the slim volume of poetry. Mom employed the shabby chic aesthetic to make all guests, both permanent residents and fly-by visitors, feel good, at home, cozy in what could otherwise be an intimidating grand mansion. But beyond laboring over our house, Mom would also invade the homes of others and impose her unique sensibilities. Sharing. Numerous times growing up, I trailed my mom into a house, room, apartment, office, and watched her immediately rip furniture from their positions and plant them in radically different, yet perfectly appropriate spots. The instances of mom's renegade and or invited decorating throughout my childhood and adolescence are plentiful, and for me, mark time. Chris once called me, what did he call me? A nun of decorating that I was married to decorating, and he said, and he also took a vow of poverty, because I don't take a fee for decorating, I just do it. In fact, I don't like it when someone pays me, because they really can't pay me enough. So you might as well do it for free anyway. Yeah, I offer unsolicited, which I shouldn't, and sometimes that goes well, usually, because usually it is a close friend. Sometimes it doesn't. Kristen's Living Room when I was 14, Kristen, who was an old close friend of my mom's, let my parents and I stay in her Key West beach house for spring break. By the time we had left, the living room looked nothing like its former self. Mom had even purchased two pieces of furniture for her, an antique chest and a charmingly distressed bookcase. Considering that my mom was working with Kristen's existing furniture, including a 1980s floral print couch and similarly dated collection of coffee table and lamps, the room looked a lot better. Hating the pair of lamps, Mom dumped them into brown paper bags and proudly declared them better. 
After she perfected the layout, she used my digital camera to snap photos of the changed scene. She sent the images to Kristen, who is in Nyack, New York. Unbelievably, my mom was able to unearth these photos from her email account. Yasmin's Condo The soap star and girlfriend of a client of my dad's office asked my mom to help her design the interior of her newly purchased Hancock Park apartment. To amuse my seven-year-old self while my mom talked drapes, flooring, and tiles, I brought my dog Pinky with me. As soon as we arrived, Pinky peed in the foyer. Yasmin made me clean the mess up and then sprayed both Pinky and I with perfume from an old-fashioned fancy atomizer. We smelled like aged cotton candy for the rest of the day. George Clooney's Pool House All I remember about waiting around for my mom at Clooney's property was that he had a pot-bellied pig. Every single incarnation of my aunt's, her sister's, place of residence. My aunt openly resents this, but often does not change the layout once my mom has adjusted it. My dad's offices. If he could choose a style, he would surely pick modern sleek, with a lot of clean lines, black leather, stainless steel. Instead, my mom rendered his office shabby chic with distress-painted tables, wooden obelisks, and antique rugs. And, of course, Elliot and Nancy's living room, a place of infamy in my family's collective memory. And when Elliot walked into his living room and saw that it had been rearranged, he went berserk. He literally went crazy. He started screaming. He started ranting. He started screaming at me, saying things like, "'This is not your house. This is my house!' And Nancy, his bride, was saying, but, but Elliot, but Elliot, I asked Danny to help me. He wouldn't hear it. And finally, I was overwhelmed. It was like I'd never quite gotten this reception before. And I finally said, Elliot, look, I love you, but you're not at your best right now, so I have to go. In due time, Nancy and Elliot, Elliot separated and divorced. Years later, Nancy told me our marriage was never the same after that evening. So sometimes decorating can be kind of high stakes, emotionally. As an adolescent, besides being dragged along from one flea market to the other, I did not participate in my mother's hobby. Decorating seemed like her thing, something that only a master should do. After all, I grew up in the phrase, only do something if you can give it 110%. And I sure as hell had no talent or interest in decorating, Besides, I didn't need to. Mom designed every space I ever called my own. When I lived in my parents' home, my room was decorated as per my mom's wishes. My bedroom had dark pink walls, velvet green curtains, oriental rugs on the wood floor, a California king bed with a black duvet, colorful quilt, and a maroon bed skirt. Matching antique cast iron side tables topped with matching glass lamps hugged the bed. When I was about 12, my mom's sister, concerned by my lack of interest in shaping my own space and its suggestive lack of individuality, pulled me aside. She asked why I didn't have any posters hung on the walls, pictures of friends, any evidence whatsoever that a teenager lived in such a place. She prodded me. You're okay with your mom's style? You don't care? No pictures of buddies? No posters? I told her those things would not look good in such an elegantly manicured space. Deep down, I recognized that my bedroom felt completely inauthentic to my life and times. Like all the rooms in the house, it seriously looked like a page ripped straight from Architectural Digest. 
It had adult elegance, and at that time in my life, a display of maturity communicated through all means possible my style of dress, my speech habits, my grades, my activities, and my space was more compelling than playing the role of kid. By middle school, I had privately arrived at the conclusion that kids were ignorant and undisciplined. I wanted to be everything that kid was not. I grew up as an only child who accompanied my parents to every cocktail party they attended. I enjoyed wowing adults with my maturity, and my beautiful, gigantic, sophisticated bedroom fit perfectly into that mold I'd constructed for myself. I faced the task of creating a space for myself the time I moved into my first off-campus apartment during my junior year of college. I was moving in with four boys who were only concerned decorating-wise with maximizing floor space in the living room for parties. The apartment, dubbed Bear Snake, had been passed down from older students, generation to generation, so the space felt really lived in. Another word for that is dirty. Denim upholstered couches lined the walls of the living room. No curtains on the windows, no coffee table. A dartboard hung on the wall. Loud boys. To bring some sense of calm and tranquility into an otherwise chaotic and messy living arrangement, I set out to develop a bedroom space that made me feel good. The previous tenant, a film major with an interest in lighting design, had left the walls of the bedroom a deep shade of hunter green. He had also set up and taken down an elaborate lighting system of Chinese lanterns hung from the ceiling, leaving dozens of miniature holes in the walls for nails. I had to work around these issues. I used caulking to fix the holes and dabbed a bit of dark green, but I didn't feel like painting a whole room. I decided to work with the green walls and incorporate reds and creams to give it a cozy feeling. I found a mirror in the trash outside of my apartment. I got the bureau, desk, one side table and wing chair from the previous tenant. The lamps were gifts from my mom, purchased from a thrift store. I found the chaise lounge in the trash as well. I covered it with a quilt I'd line around that matched the shams on the pillows. The only substantial thing I bought was the bed frame from Ikea. A stern framed picture, picture of Clint Eastwood was there when I arrived, and I didn't feel like displacing him from his original home. In terms of the other wall space, I needed large pieces of art, so I made them. It's cheaper that way. With recycled canvases, I painted a landscape and constructed a 3D shadow piece with found objects drawn from friends, the trash, my personal collection of junk. I think it takes an act of courage to direct your to decorate your own surroundings. I understand that some people don't give a shit about decorating, as my writing teacher reminded me. But I do. I enjoy the challenge. It requires the assertion of self. More than providing physical comfort, the space in question, your bedroom, office building, apartment, can serve as a canvas for self-expression. This is not about avoiding internal anguish by focusing on the external, although for some people it can certainly become that. For someone who loves beautiful objects, enjoys multiple textures, sees in form and layout. The decorating of a room is a far more spiritual act than a simply aesthetic one. Doing what I can to make my space beautiful makes me happy. And as my mom has taught me, Shadeen women don't decorate the easy way. 
To many of our neighbors in L.A., decorating means going to Barney's decor and furniture and pointing at the most expensive and illustrious pieces on the showroom floor and asking for delivery that afternoon. Or it could mean hiring a professional designer, spending thousands of dollars on antique mod chairs, suede wallpaper, imported silk for chuny lamps. For some, the goal of decorating is only to display wealth, which sociologist Pierre Bordeaux describes as a form of cultural capital. Anne Shadine hunts for the right kind of pieces. The process of assembling a room is very much an artistic endeavor in which she lets found objects inspire her. Take our summer house in Maine, for example. Unlike our home in L.A., awash in a series of neutrals, Mom has decorated this space with a palette of reds, greens, khakis, and creams that lends a merry feeling. When she can't find something just right, matching braided curtain tiebacks, a charming pillow for the foyer chair, a fashionable hand-lettered box for the power outage supplies, or a six-foot rug in diameter, she makes it. There have been times when I've wondered if my mom and I pour too much time and resources into this particular hobby. A non-believer might say that decorating is superfluous. No one needs an elegant space to function. A true cynic might say we are distracting ourselves from the unpleasant and often precarious realities of life by trying to exert control over what we can, our immediate physical surroundings. But isn't that the ultimate task of all artists? To exert some sense of creative control and draw power from that creative endeavor? Produce some kind of art that influences how its audience perceives their experience in reality? It's not just for the eyeballs. The goal is not elegance. It's not entirely about comfort, though that is critical. It's about creating a space of creative possibility. It's a gift toward my visitor's sense of creativity and artistic freedom. It elevates it from something that could be superficial to something generous. I like to think that when a friend walks into my bedroom, he or she takes a pause to reflect on what I have created. This individual need not consciously think about my design choices, layout, etc., but as long as the whole thing affects him or her viscerally, I feel vindicated. That was a reading by Taylor Barrett, a senior double major in creative nonfiction and sociology who hails from Los Angeles. You can check out her work at www.promptmagazine.com. Prompt is a literary magazine and community for writers at Northwestern University. We publish the work of Northwestern undergrads from any and all departments. We publish fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, visual art, and anything in between. Our weekly workshops and tutorials take place every Tuesday from 9 to 10 p.m. in University Hall, room 218. Please check out our website for details on how to submit.